WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Tonight on Exposure, get your presidential debate fix. In addition, I speak with Detroit Polka rockers, the Polish Muslims, talk to an MSU professor about the discovery of an infant galaxy, and explore ESPN Game Day. But first, the debate. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. On September 26, 1960, millions of U.S. viewers watched John Kennedy and Richard Nixon Richard Nixon in the first ever televised presidential debate. Tomorrow, President Obama and Mitt Romney will continue the tradition. Earlier, I spoke with Will Ripko, MSU debate MSU head debate coach, about how the candidates are preparing for the debate and what to look for beyond the politics. Historically, why are presidential debates important? Well, at this stage of the game, we've been gearing up with a lot of media attention, but in some respects, the voters haven't really gotten to see the candidates on display. And so this is maybe more than the conventions were. It's an opportunity to really iron out the platform of each of the candidates. And the debates are different. You have some that are a town hall format where individual voters can pose questions. And certainly moderators will pose tough questions to both candidates so that everyone can kind of get a feel for where both Governor Romney and President Obama fall on particular issues. So this is an opportunity for voters not not only to to see um, to have them talk about the issues, but it's it's a more kind of personal experience than say the formal speeches and the the kind of campaign um, conventions and rallies that are going on. Well, and they don't control the threads mm-hmm. to as large of a degree. Obviously, both candidates will have a debate coach. And they'll prepare in advance for a variety of things that could come up. But there is an element of the unknown that's a little bit less scripted with these debates, Mm -hmm. which I think makes for exciting viewing and does create every now and again one of these incredibly memorable moments that can make a real difference for voters from this point forward. The presidential debates, there there are those really memorable moments, um, kind of those one-liners, so... uh... An example, Al Gore, uh, when talking about H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, he says, George W. Bush taking credit for Ber- the Berlin Wall coming down is like a rooster taking credit for the sunrise. Or uh, we had Reagan in uh, 84 saying, I want you to know I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit um, for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, do you think that we'll get those kind of moments out of this debate? Well, I think the media is always looking for a moment like that. And honestly, they don't come around in every single debate. And yet we're hanging on every word to find the moment that is as close to one of those famous one-liners. 
I think everyone starts with moderated expectations and more than the desire um, for these camps to have a fantastic zinger moment, they're trying to avoid a really memorable negative moment. But in general, I wouldn't expect that out of each of the four debates, but I think something will emerge in at least one of them that that people will really remember that will become a soundbite. We also exist in a totally different era of media attention where mm -hmm. if there's even a mild slip up, it's on YouTube 15 seconds later and there's 100,000 hits in a moment. So just the way that society has changed, the way that technology has changed is a variable in all of this. So these guys really have to be on top of their games with what they're saying and their facts. No, no slip ups like well, Ford uh, in his debate talking about Soviet control of Eastern Europe and that kind of toppled his campaign in some way, some people uh, say. So you, you talked a little bit about this preparation. What what goes into this preparation for this debate? What exactly are they doing? Well, I've never been invited to be behind the scenes in preparing for a presidential debate. But for instance, the first presidential debate is in Denver, Colorado, and mm -hmm. it's about domestic policy. And I am certain, without having a behind the scenes look, that both camps have talked to their candidates about how to handle a question about gun control, because that's an issue that's going to come up in any debate in Denver, Colorado. So you think about the items that don't just resonate with the public, but could lend themselves to a really electric answer or a really pressing issue for voters. And I'm certain people prepare their answers in advance and think about how they're going to handle those situations. Now, we've had the opportunity to see Obama debate in the last election against McCain, and we've seen Romney kind of uh, debating in the primaries. Uh, can you talk a little to their debating styles? Is there anything unique or that stands out about their debating ability? I think they're actually both really eloquent and strong debaters. I have heard that the Romney camp recently came out with a statement trying to temper expectations. I don't know if that's strategic, um, as, at least as it relates to the first debate, mm -hmm. I think he'll do well. I think he's very eloquent. Uh, I think that they both are incredibly charismatic, and I think that they will both semi-answer questions and turn the answers into the items that they really feel will help them the most with their campaign from this point forward. So I anticipate Romney will turn certain questions into items about the economy and that Obama will not. Now, debates are not just, they're not just about what's being said, because as you mentioned, they don't necessarily always answer the questions. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a lot about uh, the the charisma and the, the presence on stage. And there's the, the Reagan, or the Nixon-Kennedy debate where people were, who listened to the debate had thought that Nixon had won, versus people who watched it thought that Kennedy clearly won because of the physical presence of, of Nixon literally perspiring on stage. Uh, can you talk a little about the, the importance of, of having the, of the physical presence at, at these debates? Well, you know, that's the thing. There's a lot of people who watch these debates from a very academic perspective, or a lot of the people that will comment on the debates immediately after they end are people who were once involved in a presidential campaign. And their perspective may differ from that of a voter. Mm -hmm. A voter, as you say, may latch on to a fumbled word, may latch on to a weird phrasing, or may latch on to 
too much perspiration. And so a lot of times I'm asked to give my feedback on one of these debates. And the most relevant feedback you can give is, you know, how how did voters feel? What were people's gut reaction? Because that's really ultimately what they're about. They aren't about impressing people who are involved in the campaigns. We know how they're going to vote. Yeah. You know, they're about impressing people who haven't made up their minds, people who are, you know, really starting to tune in to determine what they're going to do in November. Now, historically, the the person coming in, the uh, challenger, has always kind of had the advantage, first of all, because they've had to deal with the primaries and they already have a little debating under their belt. Um, do you think that Romney has an advantage at all uh, coming into these debates necessarily? or? Well, there's four of them, and I doubt that the pundits will think that all three of the presidential, there's one vice presidential debate, mm-hmm. will be won by either candidate. I suspect with Romney polling where he's at that he would want to have more opportunity to showcase himself in a positive light. Um, but many people feel as though this is a very good venue for for President Obama. He is especially eloquent, and it, it'll be tough to tell. I mean, we'll learn a lot on October 3rd. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? You're going to be encouraging youth to watch these debates. Uh, why is it important for people to get involved and invested in watching presidential debates? So we're actually reaching out to high school and middle school students, many of whom won't actually be voting. But I think there's a feeling with our program that it's important to get young people involved in following a presidential debate while they're relatively young. It just informs them of the issues of the day. And I just I personally feel as though a lot of good things flow from that. I also just think it's a wonderful outreach effort for our university, for getting students involved in current events, for getting students to consider being involved in a debate program when they reach high school. All of those things have a lot of wonderful education that flows from that. So that's really our motivation. And I'm excited to travel a lot, but, you know, (laughs) do some traveling to try to encourage that effort. Now, how do college debates differ from the kind of format or the way this debate is set up? Or how are they different, I guess? So part of my job in non-presidential election cycles (laughs) is to travel with MSU's debate team and judge a debate between the University of Michigan and Northwestern University. And those debates, you know, they're not for a group of voters. They're for a totally different audience. And so I try to judge those debates like a teacher would. I try to assess the quality of the research that the students have put forth. Are they actually answering the questions? But I might hold them to a different standard than I might hold the candidates to when I watch a presidential debate, where I won't be so punishing on Governor Romney if he sort of answers a question and sort of steers the conversation towards something that benefits his campaign and and vice versa for the president. So it is a different game. And I love judging undergraduate debates. But this is sort of an intriguing part of a debate coach's job to prepare for the presidential debate series. Do you have a favorite presidential debate that you've ever watched? I've actually was more fascinated when I was asked to kind of evaluate and review some of the gubernatorial debates that took place. Mm -hmm. The local mayor, uh, Bernero, was a very, very successful high school debater. Mm -hmm. And 
I just know how debaters talk and think, and I can see some of that in him. So just reviewing that was sort of fascinating academically, but nothing stands out. I just am intrigued like the rest of us with the entire presidential debate series. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Exposure today. Thank you for having me. That was Will Ripko, MSU head debate coach on the upcoming presidential debate. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Last week, MSU was joined by former presidential candidate Herman Cain. This fall, Cain set out on a truth tour during which he during which he visited 30 campuses in 14 different states to inform, empower, and motivate college students. Impact's Abby Newton highlights the key points of his speech. Thank you. 200 college students cheered as Kane took the stage at the Kellogg Center at Michigan State University. To begin his speech, he discussed something on the minds of many college students, success and money. My first dream was to make $20,000 a year. And I got there. My second dream was to become vice president of somebody somewhere doing anything. And I got there with the Billsbury Company. And when I was 12, Dad would let me go with him on Friday nights for his janitorial job. So on Friday nights, as 12 years old, I, I was assistant janitor at the Pillsbury Biscuit Plant in Atlanta and proud of it. Think about that. From assistant janitor at age 12 to vice president of information technology for Pillsbury 25 years later, only in the greatest country in the world if you're willing to work hard enough to get there. But once I achieved that one, I got bored. I had to have another one. I said, I want to be president of something for somebody somewhere doing anything. I eventually became president of Godfather's Pizza Incorporated. After serving as president of Godfather's Pizza, Kane ran for United States Senate in 2004, but he did not get elected. So, he became a radio talk show host. He says people would call in to talk about their frustrations with the state of America. Kane himself grew to share this frustration. I got ticked off, woke up one day and said, I think I'll run for president of the United States of America. I went home and told my wife, she said, have you lost your mind? Kane ran as a candidate in the 2012 Republican presidential primary, but dropped out after a large media scandal. Giving up seeking the position of president didn't mean that I wasn't still on a mission. And my mission is to help people know and understand the truth about what's going on. During his speech, Kane spoke about the three main issues facing America. This economy is not growing. 50% of the graduates that graduated from college last spring can't find jobs. The economy is going to stop you from achieving your dreams. Energy dependence is going to prevent you from achieving your dreams. And the third big one, debt. The national debt now exceeds $16 trillion. $16 trillion. That's $50,000 for every man, woman, and child living in the United States of America. In addition, he spent much of his speech motivating Michigan State students to work hard to achieve their goals. He stated that success is not a destination, but a journey. Freshman public policy major Vinny Tadetsky appreciated Kane's message. 
Uh, overall, I was really impressed by it. You know, Herman Cain isn't like a typical politician just because he's never held political office. So it's kind of refreshing to hear some of the things he had to say. He was sure by his principles. So it's nice that he's kind of, you know, branching out and telling everybody else what they are. Before leaving the stage, Cain highlighted his final principle. People died for us to be able to vote. It is not only a right, it is a responsibility. But be an informed voter. If you want to help change things, you want to help make things better, you want to solve some of these problems. I know that there are other issues, but if you don't fix the big problem, the big issues, guess what? The others are going to get swallowed up. Stay informed. Reporting for Impact Exposure, this is Abby Newton. You're listening to Impact Exposure on Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. A little more politics tonight. We've discussed the importance of presidential debates, but now it's time to look at the issues. Earlier, I sat down with Assistant Professor of Economics and International Relations, Lisa Cook. Cook spent the 2011-12 school year serving on President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And on the phone, I spoke with Matt Grossman, Assistant Professor of Political Science here at MSU. What should people be looking for in the debate on Wednesday night? Well, obviously, we're going to hear uh, from both of the candidates in a more unscripted uh, format uh, than we heard at the convention. They'll still come in uh, designed to uh, get across uh, particular talking points. Uh, but uh, the nice thing about the debates is that uh, both uh, attentive voters who like to hear about the issues uh, uh, enjoy debates, as do uh, voters who don't usually pay a lot of attention and just like to see how the candidates perform under pressure. Now, the first debate on Wednesday is focusing mainly on domestic policy, and a large chunk of that is going to deal with uh, the economy and the, and the, uh, the economic plans that these candidates are putting forward. Uh, Lisa, could you speak to a little bit about um, what you think they're going to present? Yes, yeah, so um, I agree that this will be uh, more unscripted, um, uh, different from the uh, the conventions. Uh, they'll both have to talk about their successes. Mm-hmm. President Obama will have to talk about his successes, uh, economic successes in office. Uh, Governor Romney will have to talk about his successes in the state of Massachusetts and the policies that he put in place that led to those uh, successes. Both will have to do that. Um, They will both need to speak to what there is left to be done and uh, how they will accomplish it with details. And Matt, what about you? What do you think um, are some of the important issues in, in relation to economics that are going to be addressed in the debate tomorrow? Well, Jim Lair, the moderator, has uh, a fairly open uh, reign. Uh, he can let the candidates talk for, for as long as he wants and about uh, whatever issues he wants. He's, he's uh, a designed five uh, rather uh, vague uh, topic headings, three of which are the economy, so or six, I guess. Uh, but uh, uh, that sort of gives him uh, the, the reign to talk about anything. So even though you know education and the environment, for example, are not official topics at the debate, I still expect them to come up uh, within the the economic policy uh, section uh, of the debate. Um, and I, I don't expect a whole lot of details uh, from uh, new details from the the Romney campaign. I see he's he's floating a, a few more details about the the facts about the tax 
about the tax proposal. Uh, but you know, the the details that are lacking are the 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 details about who's going to hurt, where the cuts are going to come from, uh, and who's going to have to pay more taxes. So those aren't uh, usually things we uh, expect candidates uh, to uh, forward uh, unless they're forced uh, to. Uh, Obama, you know, has to put he's the president. He has to put forward the budget each year. So we already know uh, the cost. Uh, for Obama, but uh, Romney uh, has not put them forward. So does that kind of put Romney almost uh, sort of in an advantage in that field because he has because he can be a little bit more vague about it? Um, e- either one of you can speak to this. Uh, well, uh, Romney has more to gain um, from the debate, but mostly because uh, fewer people know him and fewer people have made up uh, their mind about him. Uh, so because Obama's already been, been president uh, for uh, three and a half years, uh, people you know, are unlikely to change their opinion about Obama based on something he says in the debate. But uh, Romney uh, might be able to change the uh, opinion. Uh, I, I'm actually uh, intrigued by uh, what uh, Lisa said about the, the Massachusetts uh, governor uh, campaign. It's interesting that um, Romney really hasn't uh, been talking about his record as governor, has chosen to talk more about uh, his, his record as a business person. Uh, doesn't seem to be helping him that much anymore, um, and you know it could be that that introducing more detail about his his previous governor ro- role would actually help him. Um, I can tell you that right now he's perceived, uh, for example, as as more conservative and less moderate than than was John McCain at the same time uh, last time, and he's also less likable than than John McCain was at the time uh, by voters. So perhaps uh, seeing him in the role of governor uh, might actually help in comparison to uh, seeing him as uh, as a Wall Street uh, type. Lisa, um, can you talk a little bit at all about his his economics as governor? Did is is it going to be beneficial for him? You think to talk about that or to add that into the mix? I am really not certain, um, because he has avoided it. Um, I think that he, I think it could only be enlightening in the sense that he's introducing himself mm-hmm. to the American public. I lived in Massachusetts when he was uh, flying to become uh, governor um, and part of the time when he was uh, governor. And there's a lot that he could talk about. Now, the only problem is I think he was ranked 43rd out of 50 governors at the time, given his his uh, economic record. Again, I, I'm an economist, so that's, that's what I'll know the most about. Um, That was during a period of economic growth. And, you know, if he presents his record, it may be open to uh, more criticism, certainly. But I think that uh, all who are listening would appreciate more details. Um, Let's talk about everyone's favorite subject, taxes. (laughs) So both candidates have kind of very different approaches to um, (laughs) their plans with with taxes in regards to um, tax cuts, etc. How do you think they'll address these issues? Are we going to have any new details or is it going to be the same standard? Uh, Matt, why don't you speak to this first? I mean, usually we don't get wholesale uh, new uh, tax plans come out in the debate, so I expect uh, them to continue talking in the same terms that they've been talking about in the uh, on the campaign trail, although uh, Jim Lair might have uh, a moment to, to challenge them about, uh, number one, you know, what they're planning to do in the, in the immediate future, considering we have all of these expiring tax provisions at the end of the year, and neither candidate has really said what they're willing to accept uh, in terms of a deal on uh, what we're uh, calling the fiscal cliff. 
Um, and uh, so that would be uh, interesting to hear. And then the other uh, piece that he might be able to challenge them on is um, we know what their preferred positions are, but we don't know how they uh, plan to get those uh, policies through Congress. Uh, and uh, it, 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 especially when you're talking about a, a big uh, tax reform plan like uh, Romney is proposing, uh, it seems like Lair might uh, ask some follow-up questions about uh, just how that's going to get through a uh, closely divided Congress. Now, the first debate is focusing on domestic policy, um, and later they're going to have a debate which focuses more on um, international uh, politics and international policy. Um, Lisa, can you speak a little bit about the in the importance of of international um, politics and, and, and economy in in the debate? And I guess what is what is their understanding um, as candidates? Well, I would answer that in in two ways. First, one of my primary jobs at the Council um, of Economic Advisors was to advise the president on the Eurozone crisis. So this is one of the biggest threats to our recovery. And certainly, President Obama will, I'm sure, mention this. There's not much we can do about it. But um, I'm sure, to the greatest extent possible, the U.S. government is attempting to be helpful to our European partners. They are uh, one of our largest trading partners, the European Union and the Eurozone, and we would try to be as supportive as possible of those uh, units in any way we can. The second thing is the president's national export initiative uh, is set to increase exports by 50 percent by 2014. And certainly he would, I mean, it would probably be wise to give a report card uh, on how that has proceeded. It has gone largely well, but a lot of the things happening in the rest of the world we just can't control. Mm -hmm. So while he'll give a progress report, there's still a lot that can happen. And of course, there's a lot that can happen between now and uh, November 6th. Uh, Matt, from a, a policy perspective, Obama, he's he's president right now. He's already had to deal with international politics. Does he have – is Romney at a huge disadvantage in this debate because of that? Well, as you know, the third debate is reserved for uh, international affairs. The, the, the first debate will touch on some things. I expect Libya to come up. I expect um, – uh, the the broader conversation about the Arab Spring to come up in in some respects, um, uh, but you know not not for a, a large period of the the first debate. Um, and on those issues, I don't think that the, that Obama comes in with too much of an advantage uh, because uh, of the recent turmoil. Um, having said that, you know Romney doesn't uh, come in with any uh, notable experience, uh, and and so he's uh, stuck sort of uh, criticizing. Uh, the the current policy, uh, but without voters necessarily uh, trusting him uh, more than the current president. Well, will you both be tuned into the debates, every every one of them? <laughs> uh, I'll certainly uh, be be watching all three. Uh, and uh, po- political scientists uh, note that the uh, unfortunately the the media coverage after the debate is actually usually more influential in uh, voters uh, forming their impressions of the candidates than the uh, debate itself. And you, Lisa? Yes, uh, of course. In fact, I'll be hosting a discussion tomorrow night here on campus before the first uh, debate with. A M M S U, 
and uh, look forward to talking to the students about the economic issues that are going to be on the table. All right. Well, thank you yeah. guys both so much for taking the time and uh, kind of giving us a little insider preview of what we can expect for uh, the next few weeks. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Assistant Professor of Economics and International Relations, Lisa Cook, and on the phone, Matt Grossman, Assistant Professor of Political Science here at MSU. You're listening to Impact Exposure. International students' tuition is looking a little higher thanks to a new fee. Impact's Thea Card reports. If you go to Michigan State University, you're probably familiar with the sounds of other languages. It has become a norm around campus. But these 5,000 international students are not just bringing their language and culture, they're also bringing in money. Now for a little perspective, according to the MSU Office of Admissions website, an in-state freshman will spend $21,000 their first year at state. That includes housing and a meal plan. An international freshman's first year will cost $47,000. However, life at MSU might get even harder financially for those students. This summer, MSU dramatically raised tuition for international students. As of June, their tuition is up $500. Hospitality business sophomore Lillian Shang is from China. She says MSU is trying to stay relevant in the academic world. Actually, I don't think it's really fair, but I can understand that because in China they do the same. If it was me, maybe I would do the same, but I still don't think it's fair. In an email from Kent Casella, the assistant vice president for media communications for MSU, he said that before this raise was enacted, the fee was only $25. This year, international undergraduates continuing at state will pay $150. Those entering MSU will pay $500 per semester. 25 to 500? Yeah. Like 25, like, uh, no, that's, that's a big jump. That's, that's like a lot. That's a big, that's a real big jump. This is theater senior Ryan Bennett. Bennett is a domestic student, and he says although he understands the fee, it seems a little extreme. To an extent, I think that that's understandable. They should probably pay the same amount in tax that we pay. But I don't know if necessarily jumping up the gun from 25 to 500 is necessarily the right way to go about it. Casella says the money from the raise in tuition will go toward in-country new orientation student sessions, student corporate tours in Europe, and networking opportunities in China and other nations. The fee will also help support academic advising and financial aid. Some international students, like Shang, are lucky. She says she doesn't have to worry about money. Because uh, my parents pays my tuition, okay. so it doesn't really matter to me, but it's uh, something in my mind. Well, it's a lot of money. Because I may cannot spend money as much as I am in China. Casella says MSU is the nation's ninth institution for international student enrollment. For the 2010-2011 school year, MSU enrolled international students from 130 countries, making up 12% of MSU's student body, an increase of 7.3% from the previous year. Shang says she knows the reason why tuition was raised. I think maybe because of the uh, increasing number of international students, over 1,000 
Chinese students this year. For students like Shang, this is an inconvenience, but nothing more. She says her family will pay the fee, and she'll just have to make do. Everywhere else is the same. They they all raise the tuition. They just do it, and people will still come because it's America. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. A team of astronomers has discovered a galaxy in its infancy, giving them a look at how our galaxy, the Milky Way, formed. To talk about the discovery, we welcome MSU physics and astronomy professor Megan Donahue, who is part of the team that made the find. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Well, thank you. Uh, so, a team of scientists and yourself, you've discovered this galaxy that is far, far away. Um, emitting light not long after the Big Bang. So for all of us people who are not astronomers and physicists, what does this mean? <laughs> okay, so uh, the history of the universe in a nutshell. All right, let's hear so, it. So <laughs> first, first there's the Big Bang. The Big Bang creates hydrogen and helium, but it doesn't make stars and galaxies. That has to wait a little while. Um for the gas to make the stars and the stars to come together into galaxies. What we see today is sort of the results of 13 billion years of evolution of, of stars and galaxies and stars living and dying and galaxies getting bigger and bigger with time. So one of the holy grails uh, for astronomy has been to seek out the first galaxies and the first stars. And the way to do that is to look at the light that was emitted as far away as possible, as long ago as possible. The th indicator that we have that light was emitted long ago and far away is the fact that it's been shifted in wavelength. So the light that we see in this room um, is visible light. And if it had been emitted by a galaxy, as long ago and far away as the galaxy that we see, um, it would have been redshifted uh, by a factor of about 11 to infrared wavelengths that our eyes can no longer see. But special detectors on telescopes can see it. And so that's what we're reporting is the detection of a galaxy that um, we see now in its infrared, in the infrared light, that had originally been emitting that light in the visible portion of the spectrum, and then over the time, as it travels across this expanding universe, that light has been stretched out, wavelengths got longer, and we now see it as a primarily infrared emitting galaxy. So is this one of the the very first galaxies ever then that you guys have discovered so far using technology? Well, it's it's a record setter for now. Mm -hmm. You know, wait a week, wait a month. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. But but uh but for now, it's the most distant object that we have ever seen. So it, it, it's kind of special that way. Um, the reason we luck out with this thing is because we're looking at it through another lens. So that lens is provided by a giant cluster of galaxies that sits between us and that very distant galaxy. And it acts like a magnifying lens and a distortion lens. So it's not only magnifying the light 15 times what it would be if there were no galaxy cluster present, and it's also distorting it. It's sort of bending that light around in a 
sort of a comma shape. So without these, this this cluster of galaxies, you essentially would never N- have made this. Line. Had not no shot whatsoever. So this this galaxy is is a precursor to what we'll see with a more powerful tel- uh, telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope. So the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to see galaxies like these without the help of magnifying lenses. But uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a pretty pretty good telescope, <laughs> um, uh, the only way it could have detected such a galaxy um, is with the sort of boost, the assistance of the um, gravitational lensing of the cluster. So when you set out to look for distant galaxies, I guess, how exactly do you go about it? You're like, I'm going to look here and, and find a, try and find a galaxy here. Is there a, a certain type of method um, used to determine where you start looking? Well, what many astronomers do is try to take the most average, normal line of sight in the universe and stare at it for a very long time. And the Hubble has taken several very famous what they call deep field pictures where they're just looking at one spot for a very long time and trying to see the faintest things possible in that direction. And because the universe on average is the same in all directions, they hope to kind of get you know, little samplings in this direction and that direction and so forth to try to reconstruct the average history of the universe. Now we took a slightly different tack and that was we're looking at clusters of galaxies specifically um, and, you know, not just because they're wonderful objects of their own accord, but because they magnify the light behind them. So we expected to see um, some extraordinary things because it's giving us sort of a, a preview of the universe as it was when it was quite young. And we expected to get lucky in a way um, by looking at enough of these that there should be one or two or half a dozen such objects um, appearing in our pictures. So in looking at this young galaxy, what can it tell us about our own galaxy and its its own formation? Um, yeah. Right. Well, our own galaxy is a pretty big galaxy for galaxies. Um, so we're sitting in one of the bigger galaxies around. This galaxy is a precursor to something like the Milky Way. It will. It is not yet looking like the Milky Way, but it's forming stars at such a, in such a way that it's highly likely to, um, if we could see this galaxy right now, you know, as it is today, it would probably look something like our own Milky Way, given how vigorously it's forming stars, you know, so quickly after the Big Bang. Um, that's one of the really interesting things about this galaxy is it's it's properly young. It's not older than the universe or anything like <laughs> that at that time. Um, and it's making stars fairly rapidly, but it's not super extraordinary. It's not going to be, you know, the ma- most massive galaxy in the universe. It's, it's probably going to be large, but typical of large galaxies. And, and so um, what we we might be getting, in a sense, is a baby picture of our own Milky Way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the the dark ages in our galaxy? From from what I understand, there's the Big Bang, there's this formation, and then there's a dark age. Right. Um, can you talk a little about that dark age and how this discovery might give us kind of more insight into how the dark age ended in, in our own galaxy? Well, that dark age 
not only includes our galaxies, but enshrouded all galaxies. So what was going on was when you had the Big Bang and you make hydrogen and helium gas, eventually that gas becomes neutral. And because the universe has expanded, everything's cooled off, and the electrons and the protons make neutral atoms. And those neutral atoms are really opaque to light, you know. So it's, it's, like, it's like suddenly looking at a crowd of people who are really, really skinny, and they, they got ginormous. <laughs> so they, they block everything, yeah. right? And so light doesn't get from one p- place in that, gal- in that universe to another place very easily because there are these, you know, you know, imagine these really fat atoms floating out there in space, blocking everything. Well, what has to happen? We have to separate that electron from that proton and make ionized gas again, because ionized gas is really transparent to light. So what ionizes that gas? Well, there's two major culprits. One is stars. So newborn stars can, can ionize a bubble around them, and these things called quasars, supermassive black holes. They, um, they accrete gas, and as they accrete gas, this gas makes really high-energy radiation. This radiation goes out into the, the universe and ionizes it. So at some point, the universe has enough of these things, stars and supermassive black holes, ionizing bubbles around them, that these bubbles overlap and make the universe transparent again. So... The dark ages that we talk about is the dark ages after the Big Bang and after the universe cools off, becomes neutral, but before it starts forming enough stars and supermassive black holes to ionize itself again. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this period where it, it'd be very difficult for our own telescopes to even see through, except through the occasional bubbles made by um, the supermassive black holes or collections of stars and galaxies. So just exactly when these dark ages end and um, how it ends and whether there's going to be sort of windows into the very distant universe through chance alignments of bubbles (laughs) or is it going to be just this one big universe party where it all just ionizes and you see everything? We don't know. So um, uh, there's... One way of investigating that is to look for the most distant galaxies we can see. And if we can see them, we're pretty sure that there's plenty of ionized gas between us and that. And so we know, okay, back to then, at that point in the sky, you know, we know the dark ages are before that. So it's just continue looking further and further. kind of Further and further get... and in more and more different directions and in, and in different ways. Are you guys going to continue to look for more galaxies further and further out um, with this oh. research team? Or? Oh, of course, of course. That um, one of the scientific objectives of the program was to look for the most distant galaxies in the universe. So we're still collecting data from Hubble. Um, we've got, I think, at least a half a dozen more clusters to collect data for, and then we go through and sift through the ones that stand out as being. Um, very, very red, and follow those up and, and try to f- find some more. So I think, there's, I think there's a few more um, to be teased out of the, the, the data right now. So more discoveries ahead. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Well, <laughs> I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk on exposure today. Well, thank you for having me.
That was MSU physics and astronomy professor Megan Donahue, who was part of a team of astronomers who discovered a galaxy only 5 million years old. You're listening to Impact Exposure on You broke my heart because I couldn't poker. You didn't even want me in him Hamtramck town. But now I'm back to let you know I can really poke it down. Do you love me? 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 Now that I can poke Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. That was Do You Love Me Now That I Can Polka by the Detroit rock polka band, the Polish Muslims. On the phone, we have Dave uh, Uh Welcome to Exposure. I'm welcome to be here. Thanks for having me. And, and nice uh, pronunciation of my last name. I, I practiced. I practiced really uh, hard. I, I stumbled a little bit, but uh, I, I think I got it right. I got it right, right? I did. You did get it right, yeah. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, um, so how did the Polish Muslims come to be? We uh, came to be, actually, we were, I heard a little bit of uh, your previous guest, and we really started right around the time of the Big Bang as well. It's just, it's just <laughs> And we uh, and the ionized gas struck a note with me too because we are uh, we've been referred to as being full of hot air. So I, I can see why the segue from your last guest into us. It, it was clearly intentional. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I thought so. We started out uh, years ago as a uh, throw together band for uh, a benefit after uh, a, a new wave, quote unquote, band that uh, Ken Al and I in the band. Uh, they're not still in the band. We're in called the reruns. We had had a lot of equipment stolen, and we uh, cooperated with another band, Detroit area uh, pop band called the Cheaters, and had what we were expecting to be just a one-off to get some money back for our equipment. And uh, here it is. It's clear a little bit years later, and we're still out there uh, trying to have some fun and hopefully helping some other people have some fun too. Yeah, it seems like you guys do have a lot of fun, uh, not not only um, in, in your music. Uh, you guys do a lot of uh, kind of parody stuff. Talk about why uh, why do parodies and and make music um, humorous. Well, you know, it's something, it's just we can't help but doing. It's, um, we, I think, you know, anyone that's uh, a actual songwriter will uh, think back to, how easy it is to change. Like, it's much easier to change lyrics to pop songs that you know already than to write new ones. So, and, you know, probably going back to when we were in the fifth and sixth grade, as I'm sure, you know, since that's about what our maturity level still is now, <laughs> uh, you know, you began just changing lyrics for uh, trying to be humorous, and uh, it was so easy. So we threw a few of those in in our first show, and then, um, lo and behold, you know how you don't, often said don't encourage them by laughing but uh not everyone heard the rule so uh if we're you know we'll kind of do anything a think for a laugh kind of band not Uh, anything i know that would violate fcc regulations (laughs) (laughs) uh 
within reason, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you guys have a new album out? Uh, I don't want to massacre it, so I will let you pronounce it. Uh, right. Can you talk a little bit about this album? Yeah, the, the album is uh, called Quadrishvinia. Okay, I was going to massacre it, so... <laughs> wow, good. I'm glad you let me not massacre it, though, so... You were doing so well with getting my last name right. I know you didn't want to uh, ruin it for yourself, but it is our. It's our first CD in a uh, few years. That's probably about uh, five years, and it has 14 tracks on it, uh, most of which were recorded over the past few months in uh, Mindvine Media Studios, uh, which is run by way by Michigan State alum Carl Condrat in Clawson, Michigan now, and. He happens to be the son of our other member, Ken Condrad, as well, too. But uh, we're really pleased with uh, the job he did. And so it's pretty much all those concerned, uh, we're just trying to be funny parodies on there. Uh, a few of the songs had been recorded um, earlier. One we did at Ferndale's uh, Temper Mill Studios, a uh, takeoff on Amy Winehouse's rehab as a recall. Yep. <laughs> which was a uh, statement uh, of what was going on politically in the city of Detroit at the time, and actually uh, still is in, some, in one of the courthouses. So. And so, yeah, that came in another of our parodies, uh, Indomitian Sioux, to a uh, runaround Sioux we had recorded at, uh, at Mindvine as well. Yeah, we'll be taking a, a listen down in, uh, in in just a little bit. Uh, but you guys, in addition to your CD, you guys also do a lot of live performances. Uh, why why perform live so much? Well, because it's uh, if you, if we perform dead, it really does not get a good response from the audience. We we've tried that before, and it just doesn't work out. So. But in all seriousness aside, don't laugh. Um, you know, we really go in cycles in terms of our our live performances. The spring, summer through early fall run uh, or, or tend to be their busy seasons. And then uh, really we, we tend to hibernate somewhat from about uh, mid-October through, through uh, early February when um, in Hamtramck, the, the infamous holiday of Punchki Day uh, takes place. Uh, so we, we like to just get out and, and get in front of the people, not to mention that we uh, don't mind making money. For <laughs> we, and The fact that anyone pays to see us at all is beyond really belief. But uh, anyway, so, but, uh, it's fun playing on, in, in front of crowds, especially those that see us for the first time. Um, uh, you know, in particular, for example, uh, it was quite a kick when we first played at the Oktoberfest in um, Old Town Lansing last October that um, there was just such a really warm response. Uh, so not that I'm sure that the beer that they're serving didn't had, may have had a little bit to do with that, but uh, it's fun playing out. And you guys are going to be at Oktoberfest again this year, correct? We are going to be there, yes. And you're playing um, Friday night, so... There you go. Expecting a good crowd again, hopefully. Yeah, we're hoping for one, absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to uh, come out and chat, and we're going to take us out with another one of your tracks. Uh, this is Dominican Sue here on Impact Exposure, um, and that was Dave Uhalik uh, of the Polish Muslims. Here's a story, it's sad but true, about alignment. 
My name's Chris. All right, and so what are you doing here today? I'm here with Lou the Deer, just as uh, his caretaker today. And so what's the reaction you've seen to Lou the Deer? Everybody loves Lou. He's, you know, he's a longtime legend, an underground legend, but everybody loves Lou. So what do you think that ESPN Game Day is brought to East Lansing? Oh, it's great. In this setting here by Beaumont Towers, it's just going to look beautiful on TV, and uh, glad everybody's getting a chance to see it. Uh, my name is Bao. Okay. Uh, my name's Sonny. My name is Scott. So why are you guys here this morning? Quarterback play. I mean, it's, it's our senior year, so we're just trying to get to game day before that cup doesn't come back anymore, you know. Can you describe what you're dressed like today? Uh, I mean, we're not dressed. We're, shirt, we're shirtless. We're shirtless. Yeah. Are you cold? No, 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 it's not that bad anymore. It's pretty nice compared to last year. Last year was really cold. I wish we would have gotten here earlier. Yeah, so we got a better spot, but I mean, hopefully the cameraman will come by here eventually and we'll be on TV. My name is Ryan Battaglia. I'm a senior at Michigan State. And so they took your sign? Yeah, they took my sign. They said that it wasn't going to be on camera because I said Braxton Miller said 20 piece. Okay. And so how do you feel about that? I feel awful. I want my sign back. I want to be in game day and represent my team. So Washington State uh, has a tradition, we're all grads, and uh, we've had our flag at game day for over 120 straight weeks, uh, starting in 2003. Um, so there's a network of alumni across the country, and uh, the big flag behind me uh, gets FedExed to uh, different groups, and we take it to game day. My name is Eric Londawal. Okay, and are you, uh, do you go to Ohio State? No, I do not. Uh, my grandpa has been an Ohio State fan all his life and kind of raised us Ohio State fan. So even though the atmosphere is predominantly Spartan, do you feel like people are being respectful towards you even yes, though you're... definitely, yeah. It's not bad at all. No one's screaming names or anything like that, so it's definitely pretty cool. So, so who do you think is going to win today? Uh, I'm hoping Ohio State, so we'll see. Brenda Rezepa. So why are you here today at Spartan Game Day? Because Jamie wants to be on television. And that's your dog? Yeah. She's a miniature English bulldog. And I see she's dressed up in this yes. state here. We took her down to the Outback Bowl and was so much fun because Georgia is the bulldogs. 
And so we'd walk her around in this, and people from Georgia would, like, they'd see the bulldog face and they'd start to smile, and then they'd see her in green and white, and their faces would get really confused. <laughs> and um, But we just had so much fun. We walked all through their tailgate area, and she loves the attention. He's a good girl. And from down in Sioux to the Lions, from the Lions to the Spartans, there, that was ESPN Game Day, the weekly college football talk show, which took over campus this past Saturday for the Big Ten matchup, MSU versus Ohio. Reporter there, Gabby Saldivia. And now it's time for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Today, Angelina Mosier gives us this poem. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, I'm Angelina Mosier. And this is my poem, When I Grow Up. What I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a part of a startup, a small business mom and pop shop, maybe start my own coffee shop with the best baristas who know all the latte art but who are humble at heart. Not the vente double latte macchiato jargon junk because if it's a hot day, a hot day, I want you to come to my coffee shop and get a beer. A beer, local brewed or internationally produced. I want that Taibe from Palestine and the Almazza from Lebanon. Y de Costa Rica mi berrita imperial. Pura vida. I want to be a real street artist. My graffiti will be even more renowned than Banksy's. I want to be a real DJ spinning on the tabletops at house parties. Then take it a little bit more classy with the hipsters hanging in clubs. I want to be a mixologist and not with my mixtapes but with my drink tastes. I want to be a street racer. Those Saudis ain't got nothing on me and their Audis. Because I will be drifting on two wheels, drifting like a breeze, breezy, breathing, easy. I want to be the illest MC because I believe in the music and it would be an honor to hold the title as master of ceremonies. Now these, these are just the beginnings the beginnings of the dreams, the beginnings of the things I will be when I grow up. Thank you. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Angelina Mosier of the MSU Slam Poetry Team. Well, thank you for listening to Exposure tonight. Uh, our programming is going to be taking a little bit of a change. Next week, we are going to have our first episode of Sexposure. Uh, every year, we invite people from Olin Health Clinic to come on over and uh, talk about relationships, sex, and health. So make sure you tune in next week. That's going to be from 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, here on The Impact. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.